I'll try and keep a straight face. Ah, okay, we're, we're live. We're live. We're live. <laughs> Shooting the shit. Aussie Craft Distillers. For those who don't know, it's uh, Luke, a.k.a. Bob's Bostick. Um, the, the, the Todd. <laughs> Todd. He's just come up from the basement. <laughs> and you have to go down and get something down the basement later. And then... <laughs> and our guest, our guest for the night, Ian Schmidt, Schmitty from a Tin Shed in South Australia. Smitty, how are you, mate? Old, fat, poor, sore, overworked, underpaid, undersex. <laughs> Never ask. Going deaf, going blind. <laughs> oh, no, so, so good. Yeah. <laughs> Still upright. Still around. <laughs> helps <laughs> well it sounds like you need a drink and it sounds like we all need a drink todd do you want to go down go down to the basement and see what's down there right. <laughs> so, <laughs> um, i'll i'll start um what i'm going to be drinking tonight so i bought to the table because we're south australian tonight i bought uh Oh, where's the thing? 78 degrees. Right oh, there. down there. 78 yep, there degrees. A South Australian whiskey. And just a little wee rum. Where's the camera? That looks familiar, Smitty. Which rum is it? Um, It's about two years old, this one. It's a ring wheel. Yeah, but what's the name on the panel? Yeah, you can't see. I can't see any of my glasses. Jesus. Um, so this is the um, SS Ferret. Yeah, the Ferret. Ah, that's really, really nice rum. Yeah. 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 I uh, mm. I quite like it. It's it's definitely a, it's definitely a rum you have in moderation. You can't have a lot of it. It's it's uh, it's it's a classic sipping rum. This one, isn't it? It's practice, crafty. I managed to drink a couple of bottles of it. <laughs> <laughs> right. So we're gonna have a lot of honesty tonight, people. Yeah, Smitty's on. We're going to have a lot of honesty. All right, what are you on? So we've also got the uh, hemp gin, which I thought was an interesting start. I went to um, Gin Palooza on the weekend. Yeah, right. And um, got pretty trolled and tasted an awful lot of gin. And this one was one of the most interesting because they distilled the various turpines out of the cannabis and then infuse it and it gives different flavors and it's all legal it's illegal it's legal legal it's all legal it's all yes. legal not illegal it is not illegal not illegal actually their banner says now legal now legal yeah so yeah it's, it's quite nice tastes like a good gin yeah so, it does todd what do you got mate uh was it tria prima another australian a south australian thing uh that's a shandy Ah, shandy. Yeah, having, a, yeah, having a wee shandy. A wee shandy tonight, yeah. eh? Oh, these are cool, cool looking bottles. That is nice. Uh, yeah. The girl who was the model for that label. Delightful young woman. Mm. I'm sure she was. Yeah, yeah a lot of yeah. a lot of work went into that that design. I remember when Smitty yeah. not Smitty, uh, when Shandy released it. Uh, it was like, wow, that, that label really popped. And, uh, yeah, you, you've, mm. you've, you've seen it. It's it's impressive. It is impressive. Yeah. Very much so. All right. Well, let's get into it. 
let's get into it. So let's let's kick it off with Smitty. You've been on the scene for quite a while on the Australian uh, spirit scene. Um, what if if you say Bill and Casey and Spike were first waivers? What waiver do you think you were? When did you come on the scene? Um, not long after. We got our first licence to distill in 2004. Yeah. So I'm not even sure, Casey, I don't even think Overeem Distilling was around then. I'm not sure. But uh, David Baker was around. And David Baker, started, that one, yeah. We started distilling either the week before or the week after Cameron Simon at Lineburners. I forget which. Mm. Um but we started with a business called Southern Coast Distillers and we had an extra pair of partners. Um, they turned out to be not too good for the business, so we tried to buy them out, but they didn't like that. And they sued us and we finished up in court. And his parting gift was to handle the whole business to a liquidator, which is the worst thing he could have done from our perspective, to just thieve and bastards. Um, but we just started again from scratch and, uh, in 2013. Mm. Yeah. Right. Right, so you you are a first waiver then, you're, you're, you're definitely, yeah. yeah, you're a first waiver. So the scene back then, the landscape back then, compared to the la landscape now, I mean, there's there's resources, um, just so much resources you can access nowadays as a as a new distillery. But back then, there wouldn't have been resources. I mean, the internet was barely running at that point. So not that old, thanks. <laughs> <laughs> But you're right, there wasn't a real lot of mail. Imagining your little feet running out of yeah, your car. Yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> so how did you do it? How did you how did you research it and, and yeah, how did you put it all together? Well, it started because Vic and I were leaning on the school fence one day, back when our kids were in reception, and my oldest son's now 29. So that was a while ago, and Vic was working as a, a postman, and he told me that he had been delivering some mail that day to a homebrew shop, and they had a still for sale, and he was going to buy it because he wanted to make some vodka because he's Russian, or at least his parents were Russian. Right. Mm. And I said, don't bother. Um, I've got a still at home. I inherited it from my father, who in turn inherited it from his father. It's a copper laboratory pot still from an old brewery up in the Adelaide Hills at oh, Woodside. Wow. So uh, a few days later, he turned up on the doorstep with 50 or 60 litres of fermented something, and we tried to turn it into alcohol. Um, the wife was out at the time, which was handy. The kids were upstairs in bed, and they slept very soundly because more alcohol finished up in the air and the vapour than finished up <laughs> in the street. And it was an open flame, so how we didn't kill ourselves got me stuffed. Um, but when the wife came home a few hours later, she just about fell over when she walked through the door because the air was thick with the vapours and alcohol. So anyway, that's how it started. Did you do um, it on the kitchen table, did you? Uh, kitchen stove, yeah. Kitchen stove, right. Kitchen okay, stove, best place yeah. to do it, yeah. Um, yeah, and we had the kitchen tap hooked up to the condenser and handmade condenser out of PVC pipes. It was pretty rugged, leaks everywhere, um, <laughs> as you'd be familiar with crafty. Uh, anyway, <laughs> one day I came home from work complaining that my body was hurting from digging holes in the ground because what I used to do was make flag poles and install them. Yeah. And the bride said, stop your bloody whinging. Do something more sedentary that doesn't hurt as much. And I said, like what? 
and was a gastro view. And I said, um, well, she said, make whiskey. And even now she says it's the only thing she's never had to tell me to do twice. Um, so we're making whiskey as a result of her input. Yeah, it's a lot more fun than plate poles. I imagine so. Yeah. Do you still do flagpoles or did you give that away? I know up to recently you were doing it, weren't you? I sold the flagpole business two years ago or two and a bit years ago. Um, yeah. The blokes pay me off on the drip and he's got a little bit to go, but I'm nearly there. Uh, and flagpoles was fun. You met a lot of nice people. You had lots of big erections, etc. But um, yeah. as it turned out, you've put one flagpole together and put it up, you've put a hundred or a thousand. It's no different. It's repetitive. Bit like standing in front of a still, actually. Um, turned out that's, the, that's the biggest secret. That's the biggest secret in the industry. The secret. What, that it's a boring, repetitive blue collar job. <laughs> it's, it's a magical thing. It's, it's very dust and, and penguins. It's magical. That's, so much for humanizing. Yeah, yeah. I know you stand the still, but we go off and do other stuff. We do have a few basic rules, one of which is only do one thing at a time. Yeah. We, we will distill and do other things at a time because the still just runs in the background. And yep. if there's a problem, you work it out pretty quickly. Yeah. We only do one thing at a time. Hear it, smell it, or feel it. Yeah, yeah. Or see it. But um, there's been a few accidents in distilleries in the last year or two. So yeah. safety mm. is not becoming over, overly conscious of, especially because we're building a new distillery uh, to move into in the next few months. Mm. Right. Okay. Mm. So what will that give you uh, a lot more capacity or uh, it'll give us a little bit more floor space and a lot more profile because it's in the middle of the Adelaide Hills it's in a tourist area it's mm -hmm. hooked onto the side of the shopping centre so by the time we've got a cellar door and a bit of music and that sort of thing happening um, mm -hmm. it should do wonders for our sales because the average um, small distiller sells about 50 to 60 percent of their turnover comes from cellar door sales we don't have a cellar door so we're looking at doubling ourselves when we get one. That'll be nice. Yeah, that would be nice. Yeah, yeah it's it's. Um, I mean, just speaking from from our experience, um, when we started doing cellar door, uh, and the cellar door for us is putting the roller door up when I'm milling, brewing, distilling, or whatever. Um, but it was a game changer because um, you know people come up, uh, they experience it, uh, they want to hear it, they want to taste it, and they want to buy it. And uh, yeah, that's yeah, interesting that, that you said 50 to 60% of sales from cellar door. Mm. Mm. Yeah. Very interesting. We don't have that at the moment. Um, we're in the western suburbs of Adelaide in an industrial area next door to a rubbish dump and we use Adelaide tap water. So everything going against us by uh, convention, or what the Scots would have you believe. But we still managed to make good whiskey. You humanise yeah. the art of whiskey, my friend. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> I think that was a compliment. That was a compliment. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I hope it's a compliment. We've been doing it for years now. <laughs> so going back to your, your your inherited still, had you had any experience with it before that day? Or um, you just uh, yeah. sat there? When I was a teenager, I used to work for my father, who was uh, a cider maker. And he was in business with a bloke called Peter Lehman. You may have heard of him, one of the barons of the Barossa. Yeah, yeah, sort of know him. Yeah, yeah. yeah. They decided know. to make some Calvados one day, which is to distill cider and make apple brandy. Yeah. And we totally stuffed it up. It was horrible. It was foul. 
the uh, the barrel was made by a bloke called Eric Woodlock, who ran an engineering business called WA Schmidt Proprietary Limited, and my father was his apprentice back in the, the war days, back in the it would have been the late forties, and uh, his hobby was to make barrels. He did cooperage as a hobby. I've still got the barrel the old man used actually, and uh, but it wasn't toasted. In fact, I'm not even sure it wasn't lined with wax. Uh, it did nothing for the for the Calvados. And Peter Lehman's recollection was that, well, with this distilling game, you, you throw away the first bit, the 10%, that's called the heads, and you throw away the last 10%, that's the tails with the wood alcohol in them. And what I know now compared to what I knew then, I go, oh, Jesus Christ, no wonder it tasted terrible. Um, Is that why he went into wine rather than staying with distilling? Say again, please. Is that why he went into wine rather than staying with spirits? Um, probably. He did pretty well in wine, but the, the wine course did teach distilling at Roseworthy back, which is where they used to run that course. They now yeah. run it at Kuwait here in town. But very, very little time was devoted to distilling. And every small distiller, every small winery in Adelaide had a still in it uh, because they used to make their own fortifying spirit for making brandy. But that all died back in the fifties, I think, when they changed the excise rates. Hmm. Yeah, and just on on that now, with the landscape, with with what's happening with with distilleries. So when I started, there was like sixty distilleries. There's now like four hundred and twenty. I think that's the latest count. Yeah, about yeah. four twenty. So you, you're seeing uh, breweries now starting to go. Hey, we make beer. We understand our malts. Um, let's get a still and let's make whiskey. And this, I think you're seeing the same thing starting to happen with wineries too, aren't they? They're, they're going, well, we make our own wine so we can make our own neutral so we can, we can distill. So what are you seeing that in your wine regions in South Australia? Yeah. Yeah. There's a few, few wineries now making gin. There's a few breweries setting up uh, distilleries, most notable being Cooper's. Yes. They announced last week spending $50 million to build a distillery. Yeah. Uh, barrel storage, microbrewery and cellar door experience. Yeah. Uh, they will do it properly and that'll be good for us in South Australia because they will attract a lot of people, a lot of interest. And mm. as Billy Lark would always say, a, floating, a rising tide floats all boats. Absolutely. Coopers, Coopers won't stuff it up. They'll do a good job. And the thing with mm. Coopers too is you know, how many of us learned how to brew with Coopers? Cooper's kits, yeah. Um, they are the original craft beer, so they've got yeah. such a solid brand. And for them to go into whiskey straight away, it's a recognizable brand. And as you said, they won't stuff it up. It's interesting it's you, you so refer to them as a craft brewery because they are quite large. I did a tour there a couple of years ago, yeah. I took a little video of their labeling machine on their bottling line, yeah. It runs at 120 bottles a second. It's just a blur. Mm. And there's not a person in the brewery. The only man in the brewery is the bloke who fans the labels to make sure they don't stick together when he loads the, the labelling machine. And there's one <laughs> guy who loads trucks. They unload yeah. the bottles off the trucks, empty bottles automatically, goes through the filling machine and the washing and everything else automatically, goes through the labelling machine automatically, goes through a, a packing machine that packs it in six packs and then packs it in 24 packs. It gets dosed with sugar as it goes through the bottling machine and there's a laser-driven computer-controlled 
um, forklift that picks it up and stacks it on a, in a particular shelf somewhere so they know where to find it two weeks later when it's finished fermenting. It is just awesome to watch. It's really so, impressive. So I think it's fair to say there's not much room for career advancement on the floor then, is it? Uh, and the other problem is that when people work there, they tend to stay there. Um, we've yeah. just released a whiskey called Sticky Fingers, which yeah. was made with malt extract given to us by Coopers. Right. Four years ago, a bloke called Nick Sterenberg, who's their operations manager, I'd met him at a conference and he walked in and he said, oh, you mind if I come and say hello and have a look? And I said, yeah, sure. And he said, can you make whiskey from uh, malt extract? And I said, yeah, I've actually done it. You can. Bloody expensive way to make whiskey, but it makes a nice product. And a few days later, a pallet of expired, you know, out-of-date um, malt extract turned up. Right. And he said, go for it. So we made, uh, we got enough to fill a 200-litre barrel plus a 50-litre barrel out of it. And we bottled the 200-litre barrel a few weeks ago. And I dropped off a couple of cases to Cooper's. And we launched Sticky Fingers last week, I think. And it's really nice. In fact, when you buy a bottle of Sticky Fingers, we put a little miniature Mars bar in there because mold extract is in Mars bars and Cooper's yeah. homebrew kits, and that's about the only place you find it. Right. And I tell you now, Mars bar and whiskey goes really well. Now I'm going to have to get some. That's that's actually one of uh, Ian's tricks yeah. at uh, whiskey shows. Mm -hmm. So he'll set up at a whiskey show, and the very first thing he does is he sets up a bowl of chocolate. Right. Right. Yep. And he entices people over with the chocolate. And goes, Doesn't take much. <laughs> exactly right. So you're giving away free chocolate and whiskey. I think that's a that's going to be a no-brainer. Really, it's a match made in heaven. Yeah. Little tiny bits of chocolate, um, about the about the size of a ten cent piece. Vic, my partner, makes it and dusts it with orange. But the other issue with these people setting up small distilleries is uh, safety. We yes. had two accidents in distilleries in the last year. Yep. And there was one just a couple of weeks ago where it still blew up right next to a party of people having a gin tasting. Oh, um, yeah. Yeah, uh, very unattractive. Yeah. Uh, the, the tax office, you, I just helped a Chinese guy, he can't speak English, get a, a license, a manufacturer's license from the tax office. He has not got a clue how to make alcohol. So there's all these people, 400 now, as you said, and more every day, getting licenses awarded to them by the tax man to go out and produce a product, they could blow themselves up along the way. They could poison their um, customers. Who knows what's going to go on? There's no education or minimum requirements for running a distillery. Yeah. You know, mm. you can't, you, they give you a car. You've got to spend six or eight months learning how to drive it and spend a small fortune. Yeah, um, even more now. Yeah. yeah. If you want to yeah. be a builder, you've got to go and do courses and get tickets. But if you want mm. to be a distiller, just... Buy the still and go for it. Um, just pay the taxes. Yeah. yeah just no. So at the um, and and Smitty was there at, at the Australian Distillers um, mm. conference, Association conference. Um, Adam um, Adam Pinkard from Adams Distillery stood up, uh, and he was uh, first speaker of the day from memory, and he it's just he just told the story of. You know the 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 horrific, horrible uh, situation that occurred at Adams with the accident, mm. and it was. You look at it and you go, it was a sequence of events that led to that tragedy, right? And it just it sent a 
a chill down everyone's spine who who, who listened to Adam and and uh, yeah, you, you, I know a lot of that went back to their distilleries, including us, and and just looked at what we do and go, things can happen, right? Mm. Even even with the the best the best one in the in the world and the best systems, things can still go wrong. But but you've got to have a safety focus. You've got to be looking at everything you do because there is no room for margin in what we do is there not a lot no 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 exactly right so so there's an interesting question actually the application process requires proof of experience doesn't it or it did in 2016 uh, um, I think the, the thing i did for this chinese bloke the other day um it required not proof but a statement of what experience or that you had, yeah, but right, yeah, you know, yeah, so a statement, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah so it could be it could be as simple as uh, doing a course, um, right. a, a whiskey course, or a, a running a running a still course, or an online course, or right. spending time at a distillery, or, or that. Uh, but there's no actual actual requirement you know, to provide evidence or anything like that. So, yeah. Mm. Interestingly yeah. enough, when I went to that conference, I spent eight hours in the car with Professor Graham Jones each way. Exciting. And Vic, that was quite entertaining. Yeah. Um, but what Graham said in one of the conversations, and there were many, we got a dissertation on the beauties of vacuum distilling and everything else you can imagine because he, he was only too happy to share his knowledge. Yeah. But one of the things he said was in setting up the course that the Adelaide University runs on uh, introduction to distillery or distilling, um, he said he researched the courses on offer at Harriet Watt University and IBD and a few other places, and yeah. none of them have much of an emphasis on safety. There's very little talk on safety. Um, and I think it's beholding to the ADA maybe to step up and organise someone to do it, if not ourselves and someone else, yeah. to have a basic course required that Gives you some sort of qualification that nothing else that makes you aware of. I know that the I'm doing the IBD at the moment, and um, there's definitely a, a full module on on safety nowadays. Yeah. So it's, they they are. Yeah. And yeah, what when, does, I, when I did it three years ago, whatever four years ago, um, I can't recall any specific module on on safety. Um, it was sort of integrated with with other topics, I think. Hand, safety and handling—that's what it was. Yeah, but um, yeah, but I suppose uh, when you look at like Scotland, for example, Smitty, I suppose there's a lot of distilleries where there's a lot of automation too, isn't there? Whereas in Australia, you know, a lot of running stills and it's very very hands on and tweaking and. and well, a lot of Scottish distilleries are hands on too, uh, but you might have one bloke running six stills. And the same way they run it for the last 50 years. Um, yeah. I've heard some interesting stories of people chasing flames across the floor of still rooms in Scotland with a bucket of water or a bucket of sand in their hand. <laughs> and, and looking down the side of the still and seeing the flames underneath, which is the problem they had at, um, at Adam's distillery. There was a naked flame underneath and they were filling the still with a bucket using a bucket to put neutral spirit into the still and the bucket caught on the edge of the manhole was going in and spilled a bit and it ran down the outside of the still to the flames and that was the start of it. Um, you should probably never use a bucket, certainly never when the, there's a flame underneath your still. 
No, yeah. no, that's a that's a hard lesson to learn. That one, isn't it? Yeah, and it's because people are familiar with the job and they take shortcuts. Yeah. And uh, this one that blew up the other day in Victoria, I haven't yet got the story on how that happened, but I've seen a few photos. It was only quite a small still, fortunately, but it buggered the still. Yeah. Mm. yeah the, right. I need to do a search yeah. on that. Let's uh, let's talk about something more pleasant. What would you like to talk about? <laughs> yeah. Okay. So so I recall two things uh, relating to you that directly tie you to to me. So number one I was yeah I know one was um, I was looking for a still and. I had no idea apart from Nap Lua. No idea at all, right? And I saw a photo that you posted on, on social media and your new still was on the back of a truck and you guys were unloading it. And it was actually so, a car trailer. Say again? It was actually a car trailer. Car trailer, yes. And it was a Burnsy still. Mark Burns from Burns Welding Fabrication. And Griffith, and so that was the first time I became aware of Mark. Um, made contact, and and you know, went from there. And now he's a good friend, good mentor, and makes amazing stills. It really does. And the other thing that tied me is we were in Tassie together, and it was the um, the whiskey club um, event from memory. Uh, the quiz night. I was a quiz night, but it was something else. But you were the guy who coined the term crafty. I had not heard it until then. And you, I, I got on the bus and you went, ah, crafty. And I went, oh, I don't know if I like that, the sounds of that. <laughs> you were suspicious. Because <laughs> <laughs> it's got more than one meaning. I know. I know, I know, but you you are credited with, with the creation of, of it. So. You've managed to spin it to me, you know, craft worker. It's meant to be a crafty, sneaky bastard. No. <laughs> <laughs> it's all a front, yeah. You've done right. a good job. Know the truth. <laughs> the truth comes out. Yeah, yeah, that was... Uh... Yeah. yeah, that was funny. Well, you've certainly leaned into it. Yeah, well, I've had to. <laughs> had no choice. Yeah, no, yeah. No, no, there's no patent or trademark around it, though. What you haven't you haven't looked at that yet? I reckon you have. Crafty's too too broad. For too broad, right? Um, just to go back to a really uh, to our bit of a downer topic earlier, but oh, we're trying to get out of it. I know, but there's been some really. Uh, it has actually yeah. brought out a lot of comments. And um, Andrew Young has said that they were never allowed to use mobile phones, uh, spark causing tools, torches, um, static discharge, even lightning protection for the for bonds. So there, there obviously is a bit of knowledge out there. It's just where that's coming from. Uh, here we go. The ATO, Jonathan Harris says his ATO official hands-on experience was brewing beer. That was it. Wow. Yeah. yeah. Well, the go-to publication on this is called AS1940, Australian Standard 1940. And you've you've got to find a copy of that somewhere because otherwise you've got to pay for it. It's not cheap. Yeah. And it's really good because it puts you to sleep quickly. 
read the way I read it. I think when I read it, it took me three nights to get from front to back, and it's only that thick. Because Is it very it's, absorbent? Oh, it's scary as all shit because of the expense of the things you've got to put in, according yeah. to like 340. But then I'm talking to an architect day before yesterday, and he says, Hey, it's not in 40, isn't the be-all and end-all. The real be-all and end-all is the building codes. And it's only if the building codes refer to AS1940, you've got to follow it. So contradictory perspectives from different people. Um, yeah. yeah, but it's AS1940 is designed for, you know, paint thinners, producers. Uh, it's designed for petroleum uh, refineries and that sort of stuff where the risk is a lot greater than we've got. But nonetheless, yeah. we've still got the risks. We do have vapours. They can get to explosive levels. Um, so, yeah, I'd suggest everyone get a hold of those 1940. Have a read. But those other issues of um, static electricity, I, uh, someone, I can't remember who, was telling me that the German stillmaker recommended that they, because the distillery was collecting their spirits in a plastic drum, that they earth the plastic drum with a copper rod to an earth wire because yeah. the static... Collected by the liquid as it comes out of the spirit, well, they can be static. And I've seen a video of an IBC self ignite when they open the tap, and toluene, which is a product used in what well, used to be used in dry cleaning, I don't know what it's used in now, it was banned because it was carcinogenic. But as yeah. the toluene was rushing out of the tap, the static electricity caused the toluene to self ignite, and there's this blue flame shooting out the bottom of the IBC. Wow. So, oh, yeah. Wow. Yeah. Well, uh, so as uh, Brian says, we better all sort it out, otherwise we won't be able to afford insurance. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's a possibility. There's only about two insurance companies that underwrite distilleries in Australia. There's um, QBE and CGU, I think, and yeah. maybe Lloyds. Maybe Lloyds. And, um, yeah, they can be quite demanding in what they set down in order to make the uh, as, as requirements in order to make the insurance affordable mm. Mm. yeah right <laughs> let's move forward let's move forward into the into the positive the positive landscape ahead of us which is the australian whiskey landscapes i'd like to talk about particularly and i'd like to talk about um in South Australia, with with the what is it, Sanspa, the South Australian Spirits Association, Saspa. Saspa. South Australian Spirit Producers Association. Right. So they've got an association. Mm -hmm. In New South Wales, we have no association, and we got our ass kicked, and rightly so, at the conference because all states are very active on on association fronts, right, mm -hmm. and coordinating activity and dialing into local government and having a voice with local government. And you guys in South Australia have done it really well. Um, it's yeah. not just whiskey, it's, it's spirits in general. So I'll come back to my whiskey comment shortly. But can you just give us a bit of a rundown, Smitty, on how that started and how effective it's been so far? I actually missed the start because I'm involved with the national body and I'm not very involved with the state body. But right. There's a couple of blokes here, Sasha LaForger from 78 Degrees, George, yep. Georgiatis from Never Never. And they're pretty much get up and go type blokes. And they got together with the other distillers and started a uh, an association. And I am a member of it. Uh, and they got a grant from the government uh, 
through political connections, I suppose, a little bit of money to do a, um, a website and a distillery trail and produce a publication. And then we got another little grant, actually quite a big grant, to provide a blueprint for the way the industry was going to move forward with tourism and connecting with production and exports. And we did have uh, a bloke called David Ridgway, who was the minister for... What was he minister for? Silly walks? I can't remember now, but he, he was a good bloke and he was very interested in in doing something for this industry. Uh, agriculture, that's what he was. Right. Um, he finished up being... He, he left the government and he retired and he's finished up as the South Australian equivalent of our ambassador to trade in the UK. So he's on site in the UK. We've right. got Premier, well, we had a Premier here called uh, Stephen Marshall, who got all the distillers around to his house for a, a feed and a drink um, at the Premier's house. Not his right. office, or his function centre, but in his actual living room. Right. <coughs> on site. And in fact, I remember him complaining that he hadn't been asked to be a judge in the local gin competition. <laughs> Quite like his spirit. But I believe that the new uh, the new Premier is also pretty keen on his gin. So what's happened is a couple of individuals got together and they worked out how to network with the government and get some, some contacts in the government and worked out how to play the political game and the grants game. And it's going from strength to strength. Mm. Yeah, so, it, it, it seems to be. And all the states, are, uh, yeah, all the states are, are powering along on that front. And yeah. it's the, the tourism angle is, is a big angle too, isn't it? it it's well, the, it's a big money there. Yeah, you know, exactly. Um, the Tasmania whisky industry is worth a lot of money to Tasmania. Yeah. Our whisky industry isn't yet worth a lot of money, but I think the spirits we produce here are every bit as good as the stuff you get out of Tasmania and a damn sight cheaper. Uh, we produce world-class gins here. There's quite a few of the producers of one world's best gin and, or whatever in some kind of competition. Yeah. So we are getting a reputation for being the gin state, and that may even appear in our number plate soon, um, which is probably a sad thing. Um, but we're already the wine state, and we've got good connections, and we've seen how the wine industry developed 30 or 40 years ago, and there's still yeah. plenty of people around who were instrumental in making that happen. So it's very easy to follow in their footsteps. It's a lot easier to follow in their footsteps and just to forge the path yourself. Same yeah. as we've had easy because we've followed in Bill Lark's footsteps. He did the hard yards. He got the law changed and he, he, he made it acceptable for Australian whisky to be a, and a, a product and, and to actually exist. So because he did that hard work, it's easier for us. Um, mm -hmm. His brother, John and Kangaroo Lion, did KI Spirits and the gin there. And because he did that and got some accolades, it made it easier for everybody else to do it. Mm. Yeah, you were going to say something? Well, I was just thinking. So that that certainly would be the role of the associations to help foster that growth in the individual states and help foster the uh, the governmental change, such as the excise. Obviously, wine has a much lower excise than uh, spirits does. Wine doesn't have excise at all. It's got wine equalisation tax which is based on the wholesale value of the wine, which was brought about by Senator Birmingham when he was working for the Australian wine industry when they scrapped sales tax and introduced GST. That was mm -hmm. going to make tax collect on wine a lot less, and the government didn't like that. 
So they came up with this thing called wine equalisation tax, which is not related to the amount of alcohol at all. Mm -hmm. It's only related to the price of the product. Yeah. So, so we really need to get on side with um, with some big wigs in government and get them to change that. Then, uh, it's it's a work in progress. Um, the, it's a work in progress. A lot has happened already. And the brewers, to a lesser extent, and spirits and cocktails Australia, are all trying to get that normalised because the tax we pay is double what the brewers pay, and that's yeah. the same thing for ethanol. So that's quite discriminatory against spirit drinkers. And there's more and more spirit drinkers and less and less beer drinkers and less and less wine drinkers. And that's based so, on standard drinks. Yeah. 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 So go back to the um, the whiskey then. So um, when when we look at whiskey, the whiskey landscape in, in Australia now, um, I, I see it a couple of ways. And one way I see it is you've got your your traditional uh, Scottish approach of, of making whiskey, right, of uh, single variety barley um, and basically just distilling uh, pale malt or, or pilsner malt or something like that, right, going into into barrels of, of port or sherry or, or bourbon. That, that's sort of the standards, right? And at the other end of the spectrum, you've got the distillers, um, that are saying, well, we'll take a beer perspective. And the emphasis on beer is is a mash bill and how you put a mash bill together. Um, and then also saying what other types of casks we can do. So there's, there's, there's a lot of innovation in both fronts. I think what's happening in Australia, more and more whiskey distillers are pushing the envelope. They're, they're trying different things. Um, and it's it's because of the lack of restrictions we have in Australia and the and the way that, that we we make our whiskey. But if you have the the Scottish style and you have the American style, how do you see it, Smitty? Because you've got a lot um, of experience and you've seen an evolution of the landscape. So, have, yeah. what's your thoughts on it? Everybody started out making Scottish style whiskey, emulating what the Scots did, because I think the theory was that's the product we'd like. That's the product yeah. we drink. And if yeah. you do what the Scots do, it's a good start. We can't go too far wrong. Same as when I started. I started doing everything that Bill Lark did because I figured he made reasonably good whiskey. If we did what he did, then we'd make reasonably good whiskey too because you got to remember, we didn't know what we were doing. You know, yeah. we read a few books, that was it. In fact, some of the advice I got from people at David Baker was to read as much as you can uh, about everything you can. But back to your story... Yeah, I, I'm not one of these people that subscribes to the fact that the Nashville makes a huge difference and the type of grain makes a huge difference. Obviously, if you've got molasses instead of grain, then well, there's a big difference there. And yeah. if you use corn instead of malt, there's a bit of a difference. Uh, but the differences aren't that huge. And most people, when you give them some malt, you're quite surprised at how bland it tastes. It's got bugger all flavour. Um, and most of the flavour, as is well publicised, comes from the barrels, and that's what we believe in. But personally, I like Scottish whiskies. I can drink American whiskies, but I'm not a fan. Uh, Irish whiskies do nothing for me. Canadian whiskies do nothing for me. I quite like some of the Indians. Japanese whiskies I used to love, but I'm finding them a bit bland now, a bit beige, and the Billy Connolly sort of definition of beige. Um, so. 
we are seeing that and we're seeing things like the six malt blend out of Archie Rose. The finished product doesn't taste dramatically different to their standard single malt, to right. be honest. Yeah. Uh, you've played around with some different mash bills and I find your your whiskey's a bit off the planet for my taste sometimes. <laughs> I've got one on my desk at work that I made and that's okay, I think. Uh, and I, I do quite like some of your whiskies, but some of them are just way too often an extreme for my palate. Yeah. So I think what you're asking really is not so much what people are making as what people are drinking. Mm. So if you can make a really wild, heavy, big, beefy sort of flavourful whisky, a lot of Australians like that. And if you look at their wines, Australians like drinking big red Barossas, you know, big bold Barossa reds, and they like our big bold whiskies too. Yeah. And recently we did a, a, Vic and I did a tasting or a, a ranking in the World Whiskey Awards. Yes. We were 14 samples and we did a Zoom tasting with blokes from the UK and Japan and America and Australia and Northern Europe, you know, uh, Denmark and Germany. Right. And we had a whiskey come up that was 40% and I tasted it and sculled it nearly and they said, what do you think of that again? And I said, well, in Australia we call it Sex on the Beach because it's fucking near water. And these guys <laughs> from Northern Europe are saying, oh, no, this is beautiful. It's so delicate and lovely. It's so flavourful. And that was instantly <laughs> Well, here's a problem entering competitions. If your whiskey doesn't get in front of the right judge, they're going to write it off because the ones that I think were Australian whiskies that I loved and the other Australian loved because they're big and bold, these Northern Europeans said, oh, no, that's rubbish. Can't drink that. That's terrible. Mm -hmm. um, so mm -hmm. different people in different parts of the world have different likes in their tastes, and I think the whiskey will grow to accommodate those tastes. Mm -hmm. Does that make sense? Yeah, it it, 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 if you make an American style whiskey, no one wants to buy it. No. Yeah, yeah, so is absolutely. there any value in the in the spirits awards then when it is so subjective and it's about getting in front of the right judge, as you say, in order to get a favorable score? Are yeah. they are they a bit pointless? Yes. Um, a couple of years ago we had a competition here in Adelaide and there were three whiskies entered which had won gold medals in different competitions in Europe, the US, and I think the UK. And none of those got a gold medal in the uh, whiskey competition here in Adelaide because there was a very small panel of judges. You know, there's yeah. three or four judges and, you know, if there's a dominant judge who, who, who says, oh, you know, I really like drinking Ardbeg, and he's, he's the dominant judge. Whatever he says is the best, the others will go with. Um, mm. If you do a bigger competition, there might be 30 or 40 judges. So if you do the International Wines and Spirits in San Francisco or the World Whiskey Awards, you know, the World Whiskey Awards, they decant. You've got to send three bottles off to them. They yeah. decant with the 50 or 100 mil samples and send them off around the world to their judges. So your whiskey is being judged by a very broad spectrum of palates around the world. And, you know, it evens out. So the people who don't like it, We'll say that I like it, but there's probably someone else there who really does, and the scores will even out. And it's mm -hmm. the same for everybody's whiskey. So if you've got the Northern Europeans who like beige whiskies, when you send that sample to Australia, people are going to mark it down because it's got no flavour. So it all evens out in those bigger competitions with big panels. Yeah. And when I used to be involved in the Mob Whiskey Society, uh, Mob Whiskey Awards here in Australia, like, you know, like, 
we used to have 30 judges um, and we had a moderator. So there'd be a table of five judges and there'd be slipped in amongst all the other whiskies would be a common whiskey and maybe two of them mm -hmm. so that the different tables and the different judges would score these whiskies differently, not knowing. So you get an index error. So the scores were moderated because this table was consistently half a point lower than that table. So their scores were lifted up half a point. Well, this one All right. So mm -hmm. there was a bit of science involved in the judging and the moderation and the control, and they had control samples as well. Before you start judging, okay, here's a 90-point whiskey, here's an 80-point whiskey, here's a 70-point whiskey. They're over there in the table. Go and refresh your palate halfway through the day and, and recalibrate your palate. Jeez, that's a shit thing, isn't it? Yeah, well, most of these competitions around Australia don't do that. They haven't yet reached that level of professionalism. Mm, yeah. Look, the thing with with the competitions, it's you know, from this is my own my own opinion. Um, like we enter some comps. Um, we're pretty selective what we do. It's not because we want to enter comps because they're bloody expensive. But there's no question about it. Um, a shiny medal of some sort definitely helps with markets and definitely helps yeah. with seller door. And really, that's about the value, I think. And the other thing is that if you win, what well, we picked up uh, Jim Murray's book. Um, we got uh, Southern Hemisphere Whiskey of the Year and Australian Malt of the Year. Back yeah. We won it for 2022. Yeah. So what? You know, there were four other whiskies that scored 96 points in Jim Murray's book. Just because yeah. Jim Murray liked ours because it had a bit of peach in it, the other guys missed out. And yeah. same quality whiskey, same score, but they don't get the gong for being Southern Hemisphere's best whiskey. And yeah. for what? It's not even a point. Um, so yeah. really, it's a bit of a, a one, you know, one prize, one bloke takes all the prizes away. And it's just yeah. not indicative of the quality of the whiskey. So yeah. I reckon just give it out to people to taste and let them make up their own minds. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah, it's liquid on lips. Let yeah. that. Let, let I guess Dan, Dan Woolley, who's one of the most experienced people in the whiskey industry, doesn't even enter competitions. Yeah, he's made a point of that too. Yeah, yeah. and when you consider it costs probably around two grand or a bit more into the World Whiskey Awards, you can understand why you don't want to do it too often. Yeah, mm -hmm. definitely. Um, mm -hmm. Rum, rum. We would like rum input feedback here, aside from the whiskey gin. I've just oh, bought, of I course, bought, Steve bought that up. Steve, is Steve bought that Steve. one up. All right, what do you want to know about rum? You're drinking it. You tell me. I've poured your rum. I'm I'm generally not a rum drinker. Um, for me, uh, I find it very almost astringent. It's it's there's a, an aftertaste to it that I generally don't gravitate to. And I, I put it down purely to the the base spirit being a um, uh, being from sugar, yeah, from molasses you rather than right. But I, mm. I would probably also say it's because I've been drinking shit rum. Yeah, you know, you have been drinking sipping rums. What makes a good rum? Well, I reckon that one in Crafty's hands, one of the best rums I've ever tasted, probably the best one I've ever made. Um, mm. It's very complex. I enjoy it. Yeah. Well, I am enjoying it. Um, as as one of my um, one of my premium, I guess, not Bundy rum experiences. <laughs> I don't mind Bundy. I like it. Yeah. 
Mm. On in specific occasions, Bundy's not too bad, but yeah, yeah. are they the same occasions that VB is not too bad? No, no, no. Let, let's let's talk about Bundy then. Let's talk about Bundy. So Rick, Rick Prosser. All right, Kiki Moon, right? So Rick used to work at Bundy, mm. right? And he told me the story. So him and a him and a group of guys went to senior management and said, "Guys, can we make some rum?" And they go, "What do you mean?" They go, "Can we make some serious rum, right? Can you allow us to go and get some barrels and make some quality rum?" And they did. They gave him a budget, mm -hmm. and they went off, and they made rum, and uh, it was very good. And um, it uh, it did pick up a big gong, world's best rum, a few years ago. And it's mm. now it's now a very profitable little division for um, for Bundy. So that they can make quality rum. Mm. Rick left and, and went and formed his own uh, distillery, mm -hmm. and making uh, quality gin and other products and. And rum. He's got rum coming out to not too far away, I believe, Ian. Yeah, that's true. You go back four or five years and you couldn't buy it. You couldn't get a rum. Sorry, you couldn't sell a rum for over about $70 or $80 max, if that. Yeah. Now yeah. I sell that stuff for $140 a bottle and no one blinks. Yep. Um, yeah. Rum is on the rise. Rum, we started making it because I like rum. Um, we also started, the official excuse was if we had rum, we'd then have rum barrels. And we can put whiskey in rum barrels to mature. And oh, I've I never had a rum barrel mature whiskey I didn't like. They're all good. Mm -hmm. um, and also the other thing was we didn't have any chilling equipment on our fermenters. So come summer, we couldn't make whiskey because we just cooked the yeast. Yep. So mm. we could make uh, because we couldn't chill down the, uh, the wash cold enough to pitch the yeast and have it stay cold without killing the yeast because our mm. water comes out of our tap at about 35 degrees in summer. Um, so we started making rum in summer as a summer sport, and then we sold some rum, and it was pretty good. That one in your hands picked up gongs, best Australian rum, and that sort of thing. Um, yeah. And I like it. It's a nice change. And you really make very good flambe bananas for that. Oh, mm. it is That sounds good. <laughs> you know well, how to what's, do? what's the secret to making a good rum? Okay. Well, a good rum or a good flambe banana? I'm not really sure with the rum, uh, to be honest with you. We are still trying to work it out, even though we've been making it for a long time and we've had some really good runs. Uh, for us, the indicator, well, the variable is the amount of rum funk that ester you get, which I yeah. think is called acetate, that sort of acetone overripe banana thing. Yeah, um, yeah. acetate, that was it. acetate, uh, yeah. Sweet it, as it is to rum what Pete is to whiskey, yeah. So, some mm. people just love it. Other I think people that's, hate what it. I'm, that's what I'm on the fence about. Ethel Asset, personally, huh? yeah. Well, that one you're drinking now has got next to none in it, mm. but the yeah. one we just released a few, well, the last one we released called the Tom Brennan had a lot of it in there, and mm -hmm. not a lot compared to something like a Stro that's spelled S T R O H made in Poland, which I can't even drink, but. Some people just love it. And mm -hmm. it's the same people who drink that Brooklady Optimal. Other mm -hmm. people just won't even go near it when you pull the bun because it stinks. Um, <laughs> so it's just preferences and flavours. But how do you make it? Use good molasses. Use the right yeast. Actually, the yeast doesn't matter that much. And the longer you leave it ferment, the more of that ethyl acetate and other esters you get. 
Right. Yeah, because you're getting those esters. Yeah, you're getting those complex uh, ester compounds, and it is a category of rum, isn't it? Uh, high ester, high esters. In um, some competitions, yeah. Yeah, yeah, and and there's some of them are just so sickly sweet and and. and there's another problem with rum. You get sugar. a lot of additives. Yeah, uh, some rums have got sugar in them added. Some have got port added. And you're sort of allowed to do it because rum's made from sugar, in inverted commas. Be it yeah. spirit, be it molasses, it's sugar. So you're allowed to add that back in if you yeah. want to, yeah. depending on whose country's rules you're in. But in Australia, we don't seem to have very rigid rules on that sort of thing. So if you want to add sugar back in your rum, it'll be the same as adding malt back into your whiskey. Yeah. Technically, you can do it because your whiskey's still made from malt. Yeah, it's right. just not necessarily fermented. Yeah. So, so what makes what makes a good molasses then as a good base? Uh, doesn't have too much other shit in it because mm -hmm. molasses is a byproduct of a, of a um of a rum mill, what do they call them? Uh, refining sugar making, yeah, yeah. it's a byproduct, yeah, sugar refining. Some of it's only good for animal feed, and some yep. of it they use in food. Um, mm -hmm. I can't think what products are made with molasses, but it is sometimes used in cooking. And it's sometimes used in baking. Um, yeah. Right. Are you using dunder at all in your rum? Uh, stop pinching no. my questions, would you? These guys have a go at me every single week because I don't ask enough questions. Then they pinch all the good ones. And now it's time for Throw the Todd under the bus. Todd has a question. <laughs> More than one, I hope. What is it, Todd? Yeah, do, do you use Dunder? And if so, <laughs> you want to get the question? Oh. I'm, a, I'm interested in, in, in this because... Um, I'm trying. Now, there are people here in Adelaide making rum who do have a small Dunder pit, and the Jamaicans are quite famous for it. And they're also um, famous for that. Uh, rum funk that we were talking about earlier. Yep. So you could say that the esters that are produced in the dunder pit are helping make that high ester ethanol, sorry, ethyl acetate um, funk in the rum. Uh, for those who are listening and don't know what a dunder pit is, a dunder pit traditionally is a hole in the ground into which you throw your leftover uh, spent wash from having fermented it and it gets a bit of bacteria in there and it, it has its own growth and there's a little bit of residual sugar, so there's a bit of wild yeast growing in there. And they use that as a bit of a starter, a bit like a, a sour mash or sour dough bread. Don't they also throw in dead people and goat's heads? Uh, not that I've seen, but I have heard those stories, yeah. <laughs> it, just, it doesn't sound like it would pass food safety. Really. Yeah, yeah, that's the problem. It doesn't sound like it. The actual act of distilling and high alcohol fixes a lot of those problems. Uh, yep, yep, good point. Right. <laughs> What's with Stephen Gary saying there? High bricks, high reducing sugars, low ash or unfermentables. Yeah, okay. Yeah. That's, he's talking about what's in the molasses, I think. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Dunder is backset by another name. Live dunder is a different matter. That is where it's muck and acid. And that's where you've got to manage your dunder pits as far as your pH levels and everything else, don't you? you, you it's a whole different world, really. I know. I've never, never delved into it. Yeah. I've, 
we we um, we had a crack at making rum. We've done it twice, and um, the first the first thing was you know, we bought it in fifteen litre uh, tubs, right? Because we thought this is really sticky shit. Um, how the hell are you going to get it out of a drum? It seemed to flow okay. We filled up the our mash tun. We took the screen out, added hot water, and we went. How easy is this? And um, then when we we got to a point of uh, we had a rum wash. And it was like, where is the, where's the yields? We, we did the math wrong or something because we produced fuck all. The, the, the first wash, we got good yields. The second one, we discovered that it wasn't as easy as we thought. <laughs> yeah. The yields were way down and it was just hard work. It's an numbers game, yeah. yeah. So what is the actual mash pro? Sorry, as someone who is an entire rum novice what's the mash process for using molasses you don't just add a bit of hot water and and molasses and call and molasses and call it a wash got it you might add a few things like dap diammonium phosphate and you might add uh something to reduce the ph yeah. where the yeast likes to work and we yep. traditionally uh added actual real Limes and lemons and oranges to that. Yeah. Okay. Right. Okay. Is that to to, to adjust pH or is is it? Yeah. Just a... Adjust the pH down to about four point eight and also give it a nice sort of fruity citrus note. Um, yeah. Right. Yeah. And it worked, but it's pain. Diammonium phosphate. That's for um, nutrients for the the the, for the yeast. The yeast. Yeah. Okay. We but weren't the, using the, we weren't any nutrients either. Look, um, There's no shortage of nutrients for yeast in molasses. There's plenty of them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We um, we we like you, Smitty. We during summer, it, it's too hot to um, to make um, whiskey. So that's why we started switching into rum. Um, haven't done a lot. Um, and we we refilled uh, whiskey casks. Um, yeah. And yeah, we tasted it not so long ago, and it was, it's it's a very uh, okay. It's a second fill cask, but it's a very light rum. Um, it's definitely not a heavy, rich rum, and it's, it's definitely nothing nothing like this. So there's there's a lot of magic and black art around making rum, I reckon. And I know. Do you find that it that um, it matures longer and to get a good rum, or compared um, to whiskey? We've we've had some rums that sat around in bourbon barrels for seven or eight years and just tasted pretty ordinary. And the reason they tasted ordinary is because they had high funk levels. Um, right. We've had other rums sitting in uh, American oak and port barrels that just came along beautifully in a couple of years, and we forgot about them. And by the time we got around to bottling that, for example, the ferret you're drinking, that was an eight-year-old rum, I think, and it was just lovely. Yeah. There's yeah, not right. much that one won't fix. Uh, do you remember the um, the conference in Adelaide uh, four years ago, five years ago, something like that? And there was yeah. a guy there who ran a masterclass. Uh, it was called the the Rum Geek, and I remember yeah. him standing up in front of us, giving us the tastings of, of rums around the world, and talking about rum styles. And I remember him saying, "You guys in Australia." You just need to make dirty, dirty rum and go into those wine casks, and you'll do well. Yeah, uh, 
I tried following up that bloke. He wasn't particularly good at communication there after I said yeah, I know. <laughs> yeah. Is that because of too much rum? Or? Yeah, I think too much. Yeah, yeah. He just dropped yeah. off the planet, didn't he? He did, yeah. yeah. Yes. Um, so I've just uh, moved on to uh, the um, American Westward rum cask. Yeah. Oh, I want to try that again. Yeah. Which yeah. Um, yeah. is uh, a very nice use of an ex-rum cask. If I do say so, uh, I'm uh, I'm quite a fan of this one. We had our um, epic in the valley, and uh, that got quite a workout uh, that, overnight. That was a camp that we had a while ago. Yeah, I remember uh, reading about. It. Yeah, yeah, we had a lot. We had a lot of fun with that. Yeah, and yeah. Polish up a lot. So that's so that's a rum cast, and you and you talked about um, using. Um, you wanted to use rum casks uh to put whiskey in so let's talk about your cask let's talk about what what do you do with your casks you know what what is what do you look for in casks and the second question is are you concerned about shortage of casks and, and what's happening on the australian landscape right now um second one first i'm not at all concerned about that right. uh, and that become obvious when you see what we do is the answer to your first question. We use all sorts of casks. We're trying to work out what's good and what's bad. A yeah. year or two back, we filled way too many wine casks. I got a, a fantastic deal on Shiraz casks, and we filled too many of them, and they just turned too tannic and over-extracted in terms of colour and over-extracted in terms of flavour. And we were stuck with what we going to do with that. We thought we'd just waste a shitload of whiskey. But we... Mixed some smoky whiskey we'd done with it, and it came out really nice. We've got a product called a Solera, which is peated Shiraz. And yep. because we're in Adelaide and everyone here's had their palates buggered by drinking way too much Barossa of Shiraz, uh, they, four out of five people really love this Solera because it's got a bit of smoke, it's got a bit of red wine, a bit of talent influence, and that's getting more subdued as it gets older, so it's becoming really pleasant. And the bloke called Andrew Durbage, you probably know, really was quite partial to that one. But Jim Murray wasn't. Once again, he's a European. He doesn't like strong flavours. Um, right. So back to what we're looking for in casts. We're looking for casts that don't leak. We're looking for casts that don't cost too much. We're looking for casts that don't have any mould in them, that sort of stuff. Yeah. Um, yeah. We season a lot of our casks. We did some uh, backyard experimentation. We know that if you empty a cask after three or four or five years, it weighs about five kilos more than when you started. And by taking dry casks and putting sherry and port in them, we discovered that they put on three or four or five kilos quite quickly. In fact, yeah. they put on four or four and a half kilos in the space of two months. So we then discovered that when a cask had whiskey in it, and maybe it was a port cask to start with and it's had whiskey in it for one or two fills, We'll then take the cask and we'll fill it full of port for two or three months. We have actually filled them for two or three years seasoning, so they it rejuvenates them. Yeah. Uh, we've also been known to knock the heads off and rechar them and scrape them ourselves. That's right. quite. Fun. Have you ever done that? Uh, yes, I did it under Burnsy's supervision. I've never done it my, myself. <laughs> I, I think getting getting a headwood out is pretty straightforward. I think getting a headwood back in. Oh, that's a different challenge. <laughs> yeah, you've got to put the hoop back on before you char it. So anyway, yeah. we scraped and charred them and we've seasoned barrels. And the real secret to getting whiskey out 
I mean, a lot of people think you can put whiskey in a barrel, shove it in the corner and leave it there for 10 years, come back and it'll be marvellous. And that's just not the way it is. No. One out of 10 barrels, you can do that too, and it comes back a gold medal winner. Yeah. One out of 10, you can do that too, and it just tastes like real rubbish, you can't drink it. And the yeah. other eight is somewhere in between. So the real secret to getting your whiskey out the door younger is to mix and match and blend. And a bit of a cooking break, background helps here. And Vic is a chef by trade, and he's got a pretty well-defined palate, and he's very good at mixing and matching. I've made him go back and change them 40 times to get the right blend. He just every morning at nine o'clock on my desk is three or four whiskies to drink, taste. Yeah. And I do that and I say, Oh, that's pretty good, but I think it needs a bit more of that or a bit more of this. And he goes off quite happily and plays with it. But because he's putting that effort into making a blend, we get a whiskey out the door that's acceptable, reasonable, good quality in two to three years. And that makes a big difference to your bottom line, your cash flow. Yeah. I couldn't I couldn't agree. With you, hundred percent agree with what you're saying about the blending side of it too. And I'll give you a really good example. And I'll send a, a sample down to you. So we had uh, two barrels. One was a Shiraz barrel from uh, South Australia, and it was an award-winning Shiraz. And it was one of my very first casks doing independent bottling. So I got this cask, and the winemaker you know, gave it to me and said, "Look after it," you know. And I was like, "Fantastic!" And I said, "Right now, I'm going to go and char it." And he goes, don't do that. You'll destroy all, all the all the great flavours of the wine. So I went, okay, um, I won't char it. So that's one barrel, right, which sat on the shelf. Year one, new makey. Year two, new makey. Year three, new makey starting to change. Year four, oh, starting to get some flavour. But it was so light and, and there just wasn't a lot there. And you, you would not release it as, as a Shiraz cask release, right? Then I had another cask, and this one um, was charred, right? And this one just don't like, didn't like the whiskey that, that it was producing. And it was, it had a real um, Chinese takeaway black bean sauce thing going on, is the best way to describe it, right? It was right. really. Umami and and meaty, just very meaty. But so number thirty two, number th yeah, number thirty two, yeah. Oh, number th yeah, no, don't, don't do that. Uh, <laughs> is that the menu item at the Chinese restaurant? Or something yeah, yeah. yeah. We, we were just going down that line. We, we're about to go into a Monty Python sketch, <laughs> and we, we, we better stop. <laughs> um, but it, but what we found on the bench, and Todd and I did this because we we had two casks, and we go, don't like this one, and don't like this one, right? But playing around on the bench, the marriage of the two has made an exceptionally good whiskey. And it's one of our most popular salad releases. And, and not only that, um, it's the same new make uh, that I sourced from a distillery. And, yeah, but two, two barrels, two totally different. And it just shows you that the whole blending side of it, we started blending very early in the piece. Uh, and it's a, it's a different skill set, isn't it? And you oh, said yeah. cooking. You're absolutely right. It's like cooking. It's the most fun you can have with your feet dry and your pants on. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, standing yep. up anyway. Yeah. Yep. It is yep. a lot of fun. It's very satisfying. And, um, yep. you know, we had that. Well, it's definitely satisfying when you get it right. But there's a few there's a few shockers in between. Yeah. Yeah. Last, last weekend, we just couldn't get it. And, yeah. uh, we... 
So we've 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 worked out. Oh, that... you, you don't don't blend while you're trying to do a mash in as, at the same time because the, the aromas in the shed are just a bit too much. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> it sort of takes over a bit. Um, yeah. no, no, what I was what I was I lost my train of thought. What I, what, <laughs> what I was going to say was that um, yeah, that 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 blending side of it, it, it's it's so important. But the other thing for me, which was a massive learning, and no one taught me this. Um, is you taste something in the in the barrel and it tastes a certain way. You separate it from the wood, put it in a receiver, it tastes different than what it tastes in the barrel. And then when you break it down, it tastes different again. And then when you put it in the bottle that first week, it tastes different again. So when you're looking at something on the shelf and you taste something and go, oh, I think this is ready or I want to release it, in your mind, you've sort of got to work out what it's going to taste like as the finished product in the bottle. Do you, do you find that? Is that your experience? Yeah, and what's more, it tastes different in different places. So if we have a, a blend made up in the in the distillery, yeah, you think it tastes pretty good, we'll take a sample home, put our feet up and have a taste there and see because it, it usually tastes different, usually better. And we'll also, we've got a, a small... Uh, network of people we give it to to bounce it off because you can develop a thing called seller palette. You start yeah, to like your own booze so much that you you don't notice when it's going bad. And yeah. we benchmark with other people's whiskies. We benchmark against Scottish whiskies. I've always got a bottle of Flurio on the shelf because we make sure everything we make tastes better than that. Um, <laughs> I'll point out that Gareth's got one of ours in his shelf and he does the same thing. but you know benchmarking and tasting it in different environments and we've also noticed that whenever we've bottled something quite often we'll come back to it six months later we think geez is that the same whiskey it tastes better Uh, we've not had one taste worse they've always tasted better so Mm. what the winemakers call bottle shock may be a real thing yeah Mm. yeah i I would agree absolutely And, and we've had experiences where we We've pulled something out uh, of the of the cast and we've started to break it down, and then we've gone. Oh, we screwed the pooch on that one. We went too far, um, and then it's... I've never heard that before. <laughs> oh, <really>? Wow! <laughs> wow! There you go. I got one on somebody who doesn't know yeah. that one. <laughs> I literally had to write down the most fun you can have with your pants on or your feet wet. <laughs> <laughs> No, think dry. I'm going to put that on a fucking T-shirt. <laughs> anyway, we didn't screw the pooch because it, it bounced back. Yeah. And uh, but it was, it was that was a learning early in the piece for me as well. And Todd, wasn't that Todd? Oh yeah, yeah. yeah. And but there's always something you can do with bad whiskey to make it better. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I like your thing about using. Um, using an outside group of people to try your stuff as well. Cause we also find we're our worst, we're our own worst critics. So yeah. we're very hard on our stuff, uh, on our product. And um, it's quite nice to send it out to the world and get some, some honest feedback. And you've got to be careful there too. Cause when you're giving, well, we, 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 we still hold, right. we still hold the final say, but it's, it's quite good to get um, the group we use. We call it the assembled, um, they they give us honest feedback. If it's rubbish, they'll tell us so. Yeah, and it's, it's important people, to do that. 
it's people in the industry, people outside the industry and no distillers. And there's 11 of them. And so we, yeah, we'll, we'll throw a sample out and bounce ideas off them and, and just get some independent feedback because yeah, you, 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 you're in your, your own shed with your own, you know, your own thoughts and your own booze. And, and, you know, sometimes you, you need other people's input. Yep. For sure. Yeah. What's your biggest learning and what's your biggest fuck up? Biggest fuck up was having Tony Fitzgerald as a partner in the first business. Right. And probably that was my biggest learning too, you know. <laughs> be confident with your partners. Uh, or be, yeah, that was just a disaster. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I probably right. learned there, there is a place in the world for baseball bats. Yeah. <laughs> so, so no love lost then. No, there's no, uh, no love years, years on. So you get a knock on the door, and it's a guy with a suitcase, uh, with a briefcase from Diageo, from Distilled Ventures, and he goes, I like what you're doing. We want you to come and join us. What do you do? Uh, so thanks. That would be nice. <laughs> <laughs> nice for a couple of reasons. Um, yeah. Because we started doing this as, as a hobby business almost out of – spare time and pocket money we've right. never had the cash to do things properly yeah. we've always been really creative at finding less expensive ways to to conquer a problem for example when we didn't have chilling and our our uh, our mashes are getting a bit hot and the temperatures are going up at 35 36 yeah. our solution finished up being that we would save 60 or 80 liters out of a wash put it in the chest freezer and freeze it make big ice blocks so the next time we did a wash, we chucked the big ice blocks in. That milk. Yeah. <laughs> so, but we've never had any money, and we've never been able to make as much whiskey as we wanted to because we keep running out of money. Uh, we were too dumb to get into gin because we had other jobs. The other jobs paid the bills. We should have chucked them in and started making gin. So if the Still Ventures came along and said, "Here's a whole lot bunch of money. We want to help you get bigger." I'd say, yes, please, I'd come along for the ride because although I'd lose a piece of control maybe or, or reduce my percentage of the shareholding, my actual yeah. shareholding would go up, my value would go up. Mm. So I'd have a I'd have a, a smaller piece of a bigger pie. Yeah, yeah, so I get you. Finish up worth more. You know, half a, half a multi-million dollar business is worth more than a complete... $10 business. Yeah, 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 absolutely. And what you could learn from them would be just out of this world for a bloke like me is self-taught. So yeah, I'd, I'd say, yes, please, come talk to me. Yeah. Mm. Alternatively, ScoMo drops in one day with a, with his press, um, his press entourage and hands you a check for $4.5 million. Um, what do you do with it? Do what Lark's supposedly going to do with it and replace all your equipment. Um, you know, modernise. That was a grant for um, machinery modernisation or something or manufacturing mm. modernisation grant. So we would upgrade a lot of our equipment with that. We might even spend a bit on marketing too. Yeah, that, grant, that grant went back something like 12 months um, or something, didn't it? They've been, yeah, it was put in quite some time ago. Mm -hmm. So it was... Uh, so it's an election promise. 
No, it's got nothing to do with it. Just announced the election. It's it's a political. It's a photo opportunity that. Yeah. Anyway, that's you can't you can't knock Lark for getting a grant. You know, five no, 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 well played, yeah. No one's knocking, no one's knocking uh, um, Lark for that. Yeah, it's just the way. Yeah, yeah, it's the framing. It's the framing. Call call me a socialist lefty, (laughs) and (laughs) no, I just call you a cynic. (laughs) That too. That too. So what would you, what would you do if Distilled Ventures did come in and said, "Here's a bucket of cash. We're going to take you away. We're going to show you distilleries around the world, operations, look for synergies, etc., cetera, etc." Cetera. And they go, "What would you do as far as your whiskey differently? What would you? Where would you want to go with it? Would you? Or want, your rum? Or your rum? Sorry, your, um, yeah. I actually like the whiskey we make. Uh, yeah. Maybe I just make more of it. Mm and continue doing what we're doing because I think we make pretty good whiskey and it's a style of whiskey which may not appeal to everybody, but we like it. And luckily yeah. enough, our customers like it. But um, something we make a noise about is that we don't try to make consistent whiskey. We just try to make consistently good whiskey because yeah. we get bored drinking the same stuff all the time. Mm. And funnily enough, we are making more and more smoky whiskies lately, which is... I know I said that smoke covers a multitude of sins and you know, covers up bad whiskey, but we actually like it, and it turns yeah. out we're reasonably good at it. Um, so we'd probably make a bit more smoky whiskey and try to carve a niche as Australia's answer to Ardbeg, if mm. you like. So is that that's smoked or peated? What, what's your definition of smoke? Um, well, peated means, to me, it, it's, it's smoked using peat. Whereas mm-hmm. smoke may be Peter or it may be something else. You know, it mm-hmm. could be um, Peter Bignall using sheep shit or it could be us using our um, Mallee root smoke or a yep. mixture. Right. Okay. Yeah. Mm. Uh, could be a mixture. Tell me about the Mallee root. What do you want to know? What is, what is it? <laughs> it's top secret. It's the root of a Mallee? <laughs> Mallee tree. Yeah, it's a stump, actually. The roots go underground. The stump is... you ever seen a Mallee tree? No. I may have all around Western Victoria, South Australia, and Western Australia. The mallee trees are the ones that grow by the side of the road. They're about four or five meters tall, and they've got lots of small trunks coming up out of the ground, out of the stump. And the the wood is really, really hard, highly prized by wood turners, and it makes fantastic firewood because you chuck a mallee stump on a fire at 10 o'clock at night, and it's still burning at six o'clock in the morning. So from a whiskey from a whiskey standpoint, the smoke that it imparts, how is it a campfire smoke you're getting in the whiskey? Or a, more like an ashtray. More like an yeah. ashtray. Yeah. Mm. But we're That's also like doing some of a um of an octomore. It's like a cocky shat in an ashtray and poured it on a hot tar road. <laughs> right, that yeah. Say that again slowly. <laughs> It's like a cocky, shat in an ashtray, ported on a hot tar road. <laughs> That'll screw the pooch. <laughs> yeah, okay. Seriously, sometimes I wonder how you function. 
no, 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 no. I, I said that into the sh I said that to the, in the shed one day, and Kathy, Todd's wife, heard me say it. I said, sometimes I wonder how I function. <laughs> Booze. That's, That's an amazing insult from you, Crafty. Yeah, is, yeah. yeah, we thought so too because the rest of us thought that for quite some time. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but having having said we do a lot of smoking, it's, it's actually quite hard. We use the lark method where you, you take an existing malt, you spray a bit of moisture on it and then expose it to smoke. And it's right. not as effective as using green malt the way the yeah. Scots do it. Uh, so you have to work really hard to get the smoke into the, um, into the drink. Yeah. Um, have you ever had the phenols measured on your um, on your smoke no, levels? No, never done it. Be interesting. Now, hang on, Nick. Nick Hope just put up something. Bring that back. Bogan burnout. No, that, not that. that <laughs> I'll tell you my experience of Bogan burnout. Right. So I was at the Oak Barrel, and I was there dropping something off, and and there was a table of tasters, and there was a plastic. Uh, four litre vessel full of bogan burnout, and and uh, Josh said, Oh, this has just arrived. And he said, Do you want to taste it? And I went, Oh, yeah, yeah, it, it, it's from, from Pete, but you know, interesting. Pop the top, right? And I went, Fuck, it just, it just, it just, it, the, the aromas just came out of the vessel, right? And I, and I went, I'm not touching that. I want to drink something else before I drink that because I won't taste anything for a week after I had that. I went to the other side of the room and I was doing this. I was going, I, I could taste it and I hadn't even drunk the shit. <laughs> it's it's it a bit like sucking on an exhaust pipe of a car. Oh, it is. It is like nothing else. It's, and when someone else is. Peter sees people drink it. He's just got a big smile on his face because <laughs> he loves the reaction from people. Um, the answer to that question, are we recycling our Peter tiles in the next batch? Yes, we are. Why wouldn't you? Um, yeah, well, it's just even as it fades out, it becomes just another little bit of interesting complexity because yeah. we often, when we're uh, putting a, a whiskey together and I think, think it's lacking a bit, we'll just add a little wee bit of smoke. And you can't taste it, but it's like adding salt to a meal when you cook it. If yeah, you add salt yeah, to yeah. food when you cook it, it brings out the flavours. If you add salt after yeah. it's on the plate, it just tastes like salt. Um, yeah, yeah, so yeah. a little bit of smoke adds complexity and a layer of mystique, if you like, to your whiskey. So we, we're quite happy to leave the smoke in the faints because it just comes through with the next one. They're just a little bit different. 100% agree. It, it, it's like it, it adds some back structure. It's just something in very, very small amounts. As you said, it's like salt and pepper. It's it's just, yeah. it adds another dimension. Bit of seasoning. Bit of seasoning. We, we had a crack at um, smoked malt, um, Ian, but we, we took a different approach. So uh, last year I got wood shavings from uh, Youngie's Cooperage floor. So yep. wine wood, port wood, sherry wood. Um, they use it to smoked meats. So I went and talked to Voyager Craft Malt Stew and said, can we smoke some malt with this? And he goes, yep, we can do that. So sent a bag over a couple hundred kilos of uh, wood shavings over to, the, to um, the malt house. They smoked it for us. When we mashed in, it was just an aroma of bacon and biscuit would be the best yep. way to, right? Smoked bacon and biscuit. 
It was wonderful. It was divine. And um, sorry, sorry, Todd. It was divine. It was, a it was yeah, it was divine, absolutely divine. But by the time we, um, you know, with the low wines that was coming through, by the time we did the spirit run, it just dissipated. Uh, there wasn't a lot there, so we weren't getting a lot of anchorage of phenols. So we're now, as of I think next week, um, doing another batch, and we're going to smoke it longer. But one thing we did not so long ago, Todd and I, is we tasted what we put in the barrel from the first batch. And it's only six months old, Todd, or was it a year old? I can't remember. Uh, it's not quite a year old. I think it was about 10 months. About 10 months. I'll yeah. tell you what, it is delicious. Absolutely mm. delicious. And you'd release it as a whiskey. You seriously, you'd release it as a whiskey. It was there's no there's no chocolate malts or anything like that in it. It, it was just Latrobe, 100 percent Latrobe, and um, you just smoked it. And um, yeah, uh, it's very, very interesting. So I'm, I'm quite fascinated. So we're, we're going to do it again and we'll, it'll be a style that, that we're going to develop uh, over time. Do yourself a favour and get Voyager to overdo the smoke. Yes. Because if you have something that tastes a bit like an Octomore, that's fine. You could just use it as a source with your other whiskies. Yep. Yeah. So it doesn't matter if it's so stinking peaty that you can't drink it, like it's bogan yep. burnout. If you just yep. add a little weeny bit to your other whiskies, yep. it will lift the other whiskies, and you'll you'll use it as a sauce rather than as a as a whiskey. And the yep. other thing we discovered is that if you use really active barrels like fresh port barrels and so on, then after about twelve or eighteen months, it just gobbles up the peat and it disappears. Yeah, mm. that's why yep. all these Scottish peated whiskies are really pale. Because they leave them in dead barrels, so that harks back to our earlier question about barrels and what do we do with them. We we don't get rid of our dead barrels. We use them. We use them for our Solera and we use them for aging peated whiskies in. Yeah, right. Okay, that's that's. Uh... Even dead barrels contribute because if you're using a fresh port barrel or fresh red wine barrel, it can often uh, extract so much. Uh, flavour and colour straight away that if you left it in the barrel for two years it'd be overcooked. So yeah. we we might put it in a fresh barrel for six to twelve months, then take it out and put it in a dead barrel because yeah. the dead barrel still um still matures the whiskey. It just doesn't mm -hmm. contribute or subtract in terms of right. flavour or colour. And it keeps the clock running too. So yes. so yeah, yeah, yeah. That, that's that that's that's a that's a really good point. Mm. We found one of one of our learnings is yeah you know, we w one of the mash bills that we have the I am mash bill and that's what you've you've tasted the I am whiskies um, chocolate malt features quite heavily in in that um, that mash bill chocolate is a lot chocolate malt is a lot like peat it dissipates yep. very very quickly um, and we've tweaked we've tweaked the recipe o over the years so what we're producing now is very very different than than what we were originally. But, um, yeah, it was a big learning that, that specialty malts, um, particularly if you go heavier towards a chalk malt or a black malt, um, those flavours, they become integrated. They don't stand on their own. Uh, so it's exactly like peat. You know, if you love your peat of whiskies, go for young peats. Don't go for 18-year-old peat of whiskies. Mm. Yeah, we haven't done a lot with chocolate malts. I think we've only done one or two experiments with it. But uh, you don't get such a good yield, and I'm pretty keen on yield. Because all that yes. hard work, we want to get alcohol out the other end. Yeah. You know, 
the Scots reckon they get 415 or 20 laos to the ton of grain. We've managed over 400 twice. And I actually think I made a mistake in my calculations, but I, I wasn't going to go back and check it because I liked about a brag that I've had 400 laos. <laughs> I know you, you scratch and you get 300. So, um, yes, yeah. scratching yeah. to get 300. Yes. Well, but happy, yeah, happy. Once. Say again? We got 400 twice, actually. <laughs> but as I said, I think I kept stuff that up. We might have had more grain than we thought we had. So how did you celebrate those occasions? Oh, with a whiskey. <laughs> <laughs> I might have had a rum and coke, actually. I can't remember. <laughs> <laughs> so what gives you the shits, um, apart from the relationship with former business owners, what gives you the shits about our industry? About our industry? Um not much. Yeah? Yeah, not much, no. Um, I get peeved sometime when when I know that, you know, for example, you enter a competition and you don't even get a medal and you see people who win silvers and golds and you know their whiskey's not as good as yours. That yeah. peeves me, but not for long because I know it swings and roundabouts. We yeah. probably have on the right side of that equation more often than the wrong. Um but, you know, that doesn't please me for very long or please me very much. So not much, really, no. What, what about, do you, do you get um, people knocking on your door and saying, uh, Obi-Wan, teach me the way, right? And they want, they want to know everything that you do, but they want it in one bite where they can take it away and, and, and just start up themselves as opposed to engage in a relationship and, and learn over time or even do some basic learnings themselves? Does that give you the well, shots? No, not really. The only bloke who's really done that is uh, Paul Shand, and that was my pleasure. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Shandy the bludger. <laughs> ah, nah. He's a lovely bloke. He really is a true gentleman, and that was my pleasure. In fact, I tried to talk him out of it. He wanted to become a distiller, and I said, mm. don't be silly. Stay in your high pay scientific professor's job and, and become an independent bottler. But he, he chucked it all in and became a distiller and he's turned out really good at it in his own way. Um, back to things that peeve me, it's when you're doing whiskey shows and the drunks won't go away. Mm. <laughs> that peeves me. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> People experience that. That's... Yeah. They just stand there talking to you and you don't want to talk to them. You want them to go away. Go, go buy my stuff. At the uh, the Queensland uh, Expo, you went and I went, Smitty, three years ago, I think it was, was the last one. And yeah. right at the, the end of it, some some guy who'd had too much uh, just fell over and fell onto my sign, my hang-up sign, pull-up yeah. sign, bent the fucking pole. Right? <laughs> the guy yeah, it's been bent ever since, and uh, and he just looked at it and went, "Thanks," and walked away. <laughs> yeah. Like, yeah, is that the show where I was telling the drunks to go and visit Tim uh, uh, Tim Duckett? Tim Duckett, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I was saying to the drunks, "Oh, you like this whiskey? Yeah, I'll tell you that bloke. You see that bald headed bugger over there in the waistcoat? He makes really good whiskey." Just go over there and taste his whiskey and say, Jesus, Tim, this is good whiskey. Nearly as good as that stuff from South Australia. 
And that just annoyed the living daylights out of Tim. <laughs> a, he was dealing with drunks, and B, they were telling him that my whiskey was better. That was <laughs> Before that ever tasted. Yeah. <laughs> let's, let, let's, that, that opens up the subject. Let, let's talk about the friendly rivalry between the Tasmanians and the mainlanders, right? So Tasmania is the spiritual home of Australian whiskey and and yes they a lot of things happened and opened up a lot of opportunities on the world stage um but the mainlanders are kicking it big time and giving the Tasmanians a real run for their money um what do you think of the relationship and what do you think about mainlanders and what mainlanders are doing as far as whiskey in general um I don't have a problem with the, the Tasmanians I think they do a good job and they've led the you know, led the way and they've paved the way for the rest of us to follow in their footsteps. Yeah. I think some of their whiskies uh, aren't as good as some of the mainland whiskies, but conversely, some of the mainland ones aren't as good as the Tasmanian. So I think the quality right around the country is pretty good and it's yeah. getting better all the time. Yeah. Uh, I do think the Tasmanians charge unreasonable amounts of money for their whiskey. Well, maybe I'm just jealous because I can't get it. I don't know. But... Um, they work on the, the supply and demand thing. You know, people are prepared to pay it, so they're prepared to charge it. And yeah. I suppose sooner or later things will normalise and their prices will come down a bit and maybe ours will go up a bit. But uh, good luck to them. But I think it just makes it easier to sell our whisky if theirs is too expensive. Yeah, I can't afford to buy Tasmania whisky. Um, I've got a bottle of Overeen home, and the only way I've got that was to swap it with Jane with one of mine because I can't <laughs> afford to buy it. There's a rumour out there that distillers are wealthy. It's just not true. No. <laughs> yeah, you don't need this game to make a lot of money. <laughs> uh, the gin makers might, but the whiskey makers don't. Yeah. So yeah, I don't have a problem with the Tasmanians. But I'm not sure whether she would agree. Who's, who's <laughs> on? Oh, Ellie. Ellie from Karoo. What's she got to say? Well, she said actually earlier on that she's got a bottle of the uh, Requiem... Thank you for making it. Thank you, Ellie. I'm pleased you think it's nice. So, how many stills have you got? You so this is specifically a pot still rum. Yep. We've got three pot stills. Three pot stills, right? We've got a little eighty-liter one that we handmade, which we just use for test recipes. We've got a five or six hundred litre one we made ourselves, which we use for gin these days when we get around to making gin, which isn't very often. And we've got a three two thousand two hundred litre pot still we bought from uh, Mark Burns. Mm-hmm. Burnsy, one of our sponsors. Oh, we need to have sponsors. We need to talk about our sponsors. Yeah, we got sponsors, Ian. Yeah, really. In fact, let's bring it up now. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's a people, good... people give us money for this shit. I don't know about next year. <laughs> when they come back and do a performance review and go, mm, yeah, yeah, these are our sponsors. Especially when half of them say, don't call us, we'll, we'll call, call you. you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I think the only ones that actually want your business are barrel brokers. Most certainly, Rob, Robbie yeah, Robbie Tugnock, yeah, yeah, put Robbie your orders your in business. with Robbie, yeah, yeah. put your orders yeah. in with Robbie, yeah. he definitely wants your business. CCL, uh, Save a Glass, and uh, Wild 
Wogan. Oh, I don't even know about Wild Wogan. Oh, really? A- Adrian's under the pump. What are you trying I, I, out of water? I, I tried to get a tanker of water this week, and he goes, "Mate, I'm, I'm, I can't do it. I'm backed out. So don't call us. We'll call you." <laughs> yeah, right. Well, look, I actually put that down to our influence. Oh, we've got this, his brand out. That there? we've got, we've got the brand out there yeah. for Wogan. Uh, certainly, Young. I mean, Youngie was an unknown. Oh, Youngie was a complete us. unknown before us. No yeah. one knew him. I mean, Burns. Burns. I mean, who's that? Who's Burnsy? No, no one knows no, Burns. No, yet. I mean, no, Transwood as well. No. So <laughs> I think we've had, I think we've had a positive influence on their, on their business. Um, but the question is, will they sponsor us next year? <laughs> Fuck, I hope so. <laughs> We've got to buy beer coasters. Did you see all our beer coasters at, at the Whiskey Awards, Smitty? No. Oh, oh yes, maybe. You did. I we, we, we went down with a 1,000. We came at back with a 100. Awards, you mean oh, sorry. Yeah, you the Strandy's Bar. Yes, I did see those. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I did see those. They were like pigeon shit. They were everywhere. Yeah, they were also flung all around Gin Palooza. Oh, really? Oh, yeah. <laughs> Frisbee and those things. Back to your sponsor's logos. Was that brown one with the bloke in the skirt? Was that Andrew Young's, was it? Yeah, yeah, it's, it's, yeah that's Andrew Young's uh, yeah, logo. Yeah, that, that's, that's Youngie's skirt. Yeah. The legs look familiar, actually. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> the bo- and the body shape. Yeah, <laughs> I, like yeah. to, I like to think it, that it's a kilt. Kilt <laughs> skirt, same thing. Yeah. Why would you yeah. wear one? I reckon you can just you can just imagine Youngie there wearing his wearing his kilt, nothing underneath it, just like hammering away at a barrel and then flaming it. Just oh, that's oh. Like, no. <laughs> ben, Ben's that... up, Ben's over to pick up a chisel. Oh, watch the show. And on that note, say, say, does Burnsy? No, nah, I don't think so. I tried to get Burnsy on um, from a you know from a stillmaker's perspective, oh, and we will busy. we will at some stage. But yeah, talk to me in 2023, 2024, because yeah. he's just, just yeah, he's just crazy busy, busy. absolutely yeah. hammered. Yeah, yep. And but so we have anyway. had transport on. Yes, uh, that, was, uh, that was Laurie and, and Dave yep. from, from Transwood Cooperage in, in Tasmania. Uh, had a great uh, session with them. That was cool, yeah. See, I always get so mind-fucked when I see Perth, Tasmania. It doesn't compute. It's two different places. They are two different places. But not in Tasmania. But they're both there. In, he's in <laughs> Tasmania in a place called Perth yeah. in Tasmania. That just fucks my brain. There's a place called Perth in Scotland too. Yes, there is. Mm. Yeah. Fuck's sake. So when are you going back to Scotland? I don't know. Um, I liked it there. I enjoyed it. The last time I was there, I went and visited uh, Ian McWilliam at Glenfarclas. Oh, yeah, yeah. Nice. Whenever he's in Australia, he says, if you're ever in Scotland, come and look me up. So I did. And we got the Rolls-Royce treatment. It was fantastic. We'd organised to meet him and we, and funnily enough, we pulled into the car park and this little Ford Fiesta pulled up next to us and that gets Jared from uh, Starwood. <laughs> what are you doing here? <laughs> and we did the Royal Tour. We went through the place, every nut, every bolt, every pipe. 
Nice. And then we went to the barrel room and we tasted barrels from the 90s, the 80s, the 70s, mm. the 60s, oh, two wow. from the 50s, including one from 56, my birth year, and one from 1953. And they're all fresh, beautiful, lively barrels. Wow. Spectacular. Mm. Undoubtedly one of the highlights of my life that day. Yeah. Oh, that'll be yeah. fun. Uh, I had a... I had a similar experience at Glendronic. Yep. I knew I knew someone who who worked ex Brook Laddie, who then joined the Glen Glassy Benreich and and, and uh, Glendronic group, and he organised. He couldn't be there, but he organised that I got the VIP treatment. Ah, oh, geez, I walked down on wobbly legs that day. I tell you, yep. and yep. the stuff that I was drinking was just unbelievable. And uh, yeah, Scottish hospitality, absolutely. Yeah, I'm. I'm looking forward to. I don't know. Next year, I want to go go to the US. I've got reasons to go to the US, and I'd love to go to Ireland. I'd love to go to Waterford Distillery, and um, and to go back to Scotland. Um, but this time, I've done Speyside and I've done Isla. Um, but I want to go to Campbelltown. I'd love to go to Campbelltown. I went to Isla and I got lost. Yes, <laughs> I didn't have the right guide. No, I went to, you know, there's three of them near Port, um, Port Edwin. Yeah. Um, Ardbeg, Lake of Berlin and Lafourig. I lost Ardbeg. <laughs> well, you couldn't smell it? No. <laughs> but, um, did you meet George Campbell when you were at the conference, Crafty? No, I didn't. Um, George Campbell now works for, with my son on Kangaroo Island at KI Spirits. All right. Yeah. He used to be... Operations manager at Glenfiddich, right? And uh, turns out he's planning a trip back to Scotland next year or the year after, and he's invited me to go along with him. Turns out he's got a family member at half the distilleries in Scotland because he comes from the moor, that's where he was born. All right, so you really need to make his acquaintance if you're going mm. back to Scotland. Yeah, he's got that's a family like a member really good friend to have. Distillery. Yeah. 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 No, absolutely. I'm always keen to meet new people in the so industry. I, just to a little a little brag. A little brag. Yeah. A little brag. Uh, I'm not sure whether it'll translate to the camera. Glenn, how go down a bit. So that's a bottle of uh Glenn Livet. Glenn Livet vintage. Vintage, yeah. yeah. Uh bottled in sorry, distilled sixty-eight, bottled ninety-eight. Yep. What is it? Have you got it? I will. Serious? Yeah. Wow. So we're going to have a little taster of that magic um, at some point. It's 52 point, well, it was 52.7%. Um, a little taster of that magic in the next few months. Wow. Just because it's old doesn't mean it's good. I, I recall my experience at at uh, Lagavulin. Yeah, it'll be good. It'll be good. At Lagavulin. So it was uh, master class in the barrel house, and they were rolling out different barrels, drawing from the barrel, filling up the glasses, and we were all tasting it. And they started with, uh, it was like a 12-year-old, then it was an 18-year-old, then it was a 25-year-old, and they're all fantastic whiskies. And then they rolled out, I think it was like a 45-year-old. Oh. And we were all absolutely salivating and uh, put in the glass. And there was about 20 of us in the barrel house. And we all at the same time just nosed it and started tasting it. And we, we all looked at each other 
because it was absolute shit. <laughs> and we were all looking at each other and going, what's, what's going on? We don't understand. And they did it on purpose. And they said, this is to show you that just because something's old doesn't mean it's good. This thing had, had overrated massively and it was just not good. Mm. Um, they said, don't be fooled by age. Um, so I always remember that. That's one of my learnings when I, when I went to Lagavulin. Yeah. Cool, cool experience. I'm a member of the Stray Whiskey Club here in Adelaide. Yeah. And they do annual dinners at a place called Robe. And we have yep. crayfish for lunch and we have whiskies afterwards. And one year we had what we think was a 75-year-old Glen Farkless. Right. Ooh. It turned out that one of the lad's cousin brought it out from Scotland and his uncle had worked at Glen Farkless for 40 years. And when he was retiring, they said, Jimmy, would you like a watch? And he said, stick your watch up your ass. I want that barrel. And they gave him the barrel. <laughs> which he, you know, they have allotments, garden lots and sheds. So yeah. he put it in the garden shed and we think he'd been retired for 30 or 35 years. Yeah. So we're guessing it was, a, it was 40 year old when he took it home and uh, we're guessing it was 75 years old and it was, we, we collectively agreed that it was like, um, oh, what's the name of that female English actor who used to be in the Avengers, um, Joanna Lumley? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Past its prime, but really classy nonetheless. <laughs> well, Joanna's past its prime, but she's definitely classy. And that's what 75 year old whiskey was like. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We were privileged to have it. Uh, I think I think that's I think that's a good way to wrap, wrap it up. I think it's a good way to wrap it up, Ian. I, I, think, I don't think there's anywhere to go beyond that, actually. <laughs> it could be unattractive. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you for having me around. It was a pleasure. It was a hoot. Thank you. For Thanks, my friend. I appreciate you coming on board. Oh, yeah. shit, sorry. <laughs> appreciate you coming on board. I'm sorry. Again. Get yeah, rid of sorry. it. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> any final words, Smitty? Anything you want to say to our, our, our massive audience, which is mm. growing each day? Growing every well, day, at least one. One by one. <laughs> I'll put in a good word with you for Burns and having dinner with him Tuesday night. Oh, yeah? So I'll put uh, when you do, when you, yeah. when you see uh, Burns, he say, has he made my fitting for cleaning my hoses? He knows what I'm talking about. Probably about the same place as mine. <laughs> <laughs> Thank Thank you you. very much, everyone, for listening and watching and all the things. Please like and subscribe. I need to do the things. Like and subscribe. Um, If you can leave us a review on um, on iTunes, podcast, Apple Podcasts. I don't know whether you can review on Spotify. I don't think if you can do it. I don't use it. Um, The more of that, the absolute better. Thank you very much, Ian. It's been an absolute pleasure. Ian's website. Website. Fuck yes. Ian, he's, we're going to put your website up on, mate, so people know where you are. What? Fuck. <laughs> Shit. So, www.tinshed.com.au.au.au.au.au.au.au.au.au.au.au.au.au.au.au.au.au.au.au.au.au.au.au.au.au.au.au.au.au.au.au.au.au.au.au.au.au.au.au.au.au.au.au.au.au.au
because whatever. <laughs> that's, that's another discussion for another podcast. <laughs> Is that the right one? Is that right, Ian? Tinshed.com.au? Uh, that's it. That's correct. Yeah. Cool. <laughs> good, good recovery. Good shit. recovery. Lucky, lucky you didn't put in Florio or something like that because that would have been too <laughs> Lucky I didn't put in Pornhub. <laughs> <laughs> and on that note, and on that note, see you, and see you later, guys. Good evening. Thank you all. Cheers. Good night. How do we get out of this thing? <laughs>